thank you so much for coming here with us today, Mr. Carithers. Um, you've had an expansive career spent spanning from the Department of Defense, the ODNI Associate Deputy Director, staff member on the House Committee on Homeland Security, and now the principal at Cornerstone Government Affairs. Um, I wanted to ask you, what would you consider the highlight or highlights of your career thus far? Well, thank you for your, your, your question and, and thank you for um, allowing me to, to speak to, to your audience. I'm, I'm humbled and honored. I think the highlights of my career, first and foremost, uh, was back in 2009 when I deployed to Iraq when I was part of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, it was my first time leading. Uh, I, I led a, a small group in, in Iraq and it was my first time uh, managing people. And I say that because I kind of just got thrown to the wolves. My leadership said, hey, you're, you're not bashful, you're engaging, and you're fairly sharp. And I got a pat on the back and said, go lead. And of course I had some training, obviously. But, you know, to, to see, you know, the fruits of my labor as immediately as I saw them when I was deployed to Iraq, was something very, very special to me. When our brave men and women acted on intelligence that I provided, that my team provided, and they would go out and conduct missions, conduct operations based off the intelligence that I provided, to see them all come back safe and sound was absolutely priceless. And I honestly don't think I will get anything more rewarding professionally than that. Uh, another uh, highlight of my career, honestly, would be you're advising members of Congress on matters of national security. Um, first time being in 2015 when I was a Brookings Institution Fellow, advising then ranking member Senator Tom Carper from Delaware on a myriad of foreign policy and homeland security issues. And this is back in 2015. And this was during the time of the JCPOA, the, the Iran deal, uh, advising Senator Carper on uh, on Iran, on those types of uh, nuclear negotiations, you know, with the P5 plus one, was something that I think was absolutely phenomenal to advise, to brief, to keep abreast uh, one of our nation's most senior and most seasoned politicians was absolutely amazing. And um, the second um, part to that is when I came back to Capitol Hill, this is most recently in 2019 for House Homeland, advising its chairman, Benny Thompson, Benny Thompson from Mississippi. Absolutely phenomenal experience advising Chairman Thompson, who is chairman of the Committee on Homeland Security on a myriad of intelligence and national security matters. Absolutely loved it. And what, what was so special to me about that experience is there aren't a lot of African-Americans in a national security and foreign policy space, just being honest. And there are even fewer who conduct national security policymaking at that level. So it was truly an honor and something that I will always cherish.
Definitely. And I and I love the thing that you're talking about earlier with Iraq, this idea of um, you kind of doing this policy planning and this idea of getting this um, instruction and kind of learning about the field and getting ready to kind of implement it in Iraq, right? Um, that's such a kind of interesting idea, this idea of working in Capitol Hill, working in DC, and then now seeing kind of your work being applied. What did you learn from that experience kind of going in with that leadership? Um, the first thing I learned was that all politics is local. It's a phrase that former Speaker of the House during the Reagan administration, Tip O'Neill, from my home state of Massachusetts would always say, all politics is local. So when I first came to Capitol Hill in 2015, there was a bit of a learning curve for me. In the intelligence community, we do not prescribe policy. We present facts as we understand them to decision makers um, and to business leaders. And it's up to those decision makers to enact on the information that we give them. Now, when I was on Capitol Hill, I was presenting facts as I understood them, but the flip side was we got to prescribe policy. Was there legislation that I thought uh, a member should develop or support if a member should vote a certain way on a particular topic? So from, from the contrast from the IC, not being policy prescriptive to being policy prescriptive. I thought was absolutely fascinating and honestly intellectually stimulating. Thank you for that. And just to kind of date all the way back to before you even got in kind of Capitol Hill, before you even came to Iraq, let's go back to college, right? So you attended Morehouse University or Morehouse College, my bad. Um, how was that experience for you and how did it train you to be a strong black man in your field? So uh, Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, like many HBCUs, prepares its students for public service. Me attending Morehouse College, I got first exposed to public service on a national level. It was the first time I was told that I will be great one day. And as a young black male to hear that was so, so healthy, so reassuring and gave me the confidence that I think I needed to pursue a career in public service at that level. I remember a mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Michael Hodge, the former provost of Morehouse College always asked me, how are you gonna change the world? No one has ever asked me that. I never thought that I could change the world. And for a young black male to, constant, to constantly hear that from an individual who you admire is absolutely amazing. And it, I took that to heart, you know, and almost every professional decision I made leading through my career, I always asked, okay, what's the impact I'm going to leave here? What's the positive impact I can make? And it's something that always stuck with me. You know, we're seeing an ongoing, I guess, call to HBCU students. As HBCU students, I can say for myself, uh, you know, the government's reaching out to HBCU students at the moment to really get them into foreign policy. So what you, why would you say that that's important? Or why do you think that's such an important thing to reach out to students from HBCUs to get them involved in this field? Oh, this is a very, this is a very important question. A lack of diversity 
in the national security and foreign policy arena is a detriment to the safety of our nation. And let me unpackage this for you. We want diversity of thought, diversity of culture, addressing our hardest problems like keeping Americans safe at home and abroad. When you have a collective of individuals who are from the same culture, same background, look at the world through the same lens, it creates this atmosphere of monolithic groupthink. And so that rich diversity of culture, that real reflection of what America really looks like is paramount to our safety, it's paramount to keeping Americans, our allies and our interests safe abroad and at home. And without so, you know, it makes us truly less safe. And if, and if, I, could, if I could tack on here, there's no better place to pull from individuals who want to serve their country than an HBCU, if you're looking for that rich, diverse talent, because the diverse talent is already there. But you have to have a commitment. You have to have a sustained engagement with these HBCUs to, to cultivate that pipeline. You know, I used to do recruiting on the side uh, for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, where I spent nine years. And myself and a colleague of mine from ODNI, a brilliant, a brilliant intelligence officer by the name of Sophia Lee, a graduate of Clark Atlanta University, you know, we sat down before we uh, would travel to the, these uh, job fairs at HBCUs. We would sit down and we would kind of brainstorm, how can we get more bang for our buck? How can we really resonate with the students where they are more open to speaking to us about national security, careers in the, in the intelligence community and foreign policy? But we said, hey, why don't we reach into our deep network and talk to some former professors and see if we could teach a national security module in some of their courses prior to the day of the job fair. So we could give the students a flavor of national security, a flavor of the intelligence community, and more importantly, teach them what the intelligence community is not, what national security is not, what foreign policy is not, because oftentimes there's misconception. Um, and a lot of things have been glorified in, in Hollywood, which is just in, inaccurate. And we did just that and it paid dividends. You know, we would teach this, this, this module and uh, very interactive students would ask questions and we would dispel a lot of myths and we would highlight what a career in national security looks like because it's, it's broad, right? It's broad. It's not just the intelligence community or the state department or serving in the military. There's private industry, there are think tanks, there's a whole wealth of different positions and careers you're gonna have in this field. And we had that candid conversation. And then the next day or two days later, time for the job fair, word spread, and we had more and more students come to us 
seeking more information, asking how they could apply, asking where they need to go, whom they should talk to, and more importantly, how to craft their resume and fine tune their, their, um, their job interviewing skills. And I think that's so important. And I think you touched on it. The idea of a lot of students, especially students of color, don't feel like we're equipped enough or have enough experience to get into this field, right? It's this huge kind of monolith and something that's so far ahead of us as it's possible for us to get into. And I think, like you said, that idea of by kind of explaining it and breaking it down, making it possible and seeing representation of people in this field, I think it goes so far. I think that goes into like my follow-up question in the future, right? How do you think that we can include more black students and how do you think we can get more black professionals into this field? Great question, important question. I think it starts with the executive branch agencies who deal with national security and foreign policy matters. I think they have to realize, and a lot of them do now, a lot of them do now, they have to realize that they need prolonged and sustained engagement with HBCUs. And the first step to do that, and you touched on it, it's important for students to see individuals that look like themselves in the careers they may want to pursue, right? That goes a long way. So it's very important for these agencies to first identify individuals that look like them. And even better, if they can identify alumni from these institutions that work or have worked in these executive branch agencies and send them down to their, their um, alma maters and engage the students. You have to go above and beyond the job fair because you gotta think about it. In a job fair, you're, you're competing with literally hundreds of other organizations. And if you've ever been to uh, an HBCU job fair, they're massive, they, they're absolutely massive. I mean, in some cases, hundreds of vendors, hundreds of vendors. And that's why it's so important to kind of cultivate that relationship beforehand. So that's number one. And we, now we have to talk about the inclusion aspect. You have to have management from middle, senior, and at the principal level, that's reflective of what the United States looks like. That's key. And without that, things probably will not change. And what I mean by that is you have to have champions. You have to have torchbearers who will continue to fight and push for diversity and inclusion because diversity, you can just check a box and say, hey, I'm a diverse organization. But if you're not focusing on the inclusion, then what's the point of, of the diversity? You know, what's the point of engaging in all these efforts when you're not pushing people who look like what, what the United States really looks like into management and senior positions. That's, that's very, very, very key. So the inclusion part cannot be overlooked. Yeah, I think it, it kind of goes to this idea of, are we just kind of seeking out black professionals or are we changing a culture? And I think that that's the key when it comes to these government kind of positions in these government places is that we need to change the culture to make it more inclusive towards African-Americans and people in the field. And let me chime in. You said mm -hmm. something very important, change the culture. There needs to be accountability. There needs to be accountability in these executive branch agencies. You know, and, and it starts at the top. 
it starts at the top with the with the agency heads and their deputies and their principals right they have to hold each office accountable what are they specifically doing for diversity and inclusion that has to be a metric there has to those metrics have to be captured and there has to be a sustained effort that leadership truly cares about this because it's important to the mission because it makes us safer that's so true and i think i don't know if this is a personal opinion but this idea of we see kind of on tv right that diversity is almost a political kind of stance now right um, we see kind of as different political administration comes in, more diversity is valued and such. Do you think that we'll be able to create a sustained level of diversity if we're just kind of focusing on it as this administrative or this kind of, I guess, stance as it comes into politics? I, I think it has to be organic. You have to have leaders who genuinely want diversity and inclusion and equity and you have to have those leaders fight and push for it. Because if they don't want it, if they don't fight for it, it's likely it will not happen. And it, and it starts at the top and it has to be organic. So I guess what got you into the idea of recruitment, right? Getting, going straight to these HBCUs. Did you feel like you were the only one who wanted, as well as um, the woman from Clark Atlanta, or did you feel like this was just something you had to do in the field? Well, when I first, you know, became an intelligence officer, I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me. So I saw very few people that, that, that looked like me. And, you know, being a graduate of Morehouse College, just thinking back when I was a student and I'm class of 2005, just so many of my Morehouse brothers wanting to, to serve their nation. And, you know, I, I thought to myself, you know, this, this could be remedied. And so when I came an intelligence officer with the office of the director, of national intelligence, ODNI, you know, I, I reached out to a, a dear friend and, and mentor, um, Rita Sampson, who's a chief of EELD, Equal Employment Office and Diversity at ODNI. And I said, hey, Rita, I, I have this idea. I don't see a lot of people that look like me. Perhaps myself and, and my colleague um, Sophia Lee, who graduated from Clark Atlanta, maybe we could go down if our, if our, if our duty permits, maybe we can go down and have conversations with students and pick their brain a little bit and recruit from that angle. And, and she said, absolutely. And, and, and she loved it. And I, I recall, um, this, this is maybe, I think this was 2016. Either 2016 or 2017, you know, I I wanted, you know, then Director of National Intelligence James Clapper to to visit Morehouse College 
because I thought it would be important of an individual of that stature to visit an HBCU. And so far, uh, I asked, I asked um, Director Clapper, he said, absolutely. And he was the first DNI to visit an HBCU. And his first visit to an HBCU was Morehouse College. And in his opening remarks, the first words to ever come out of a DNI's mouth to any HBCU, which is Morehouse College, was Black Lives Matter. And everyone was falling out of their seats applauding. And the, the speech he delivered was so powerful. You can pull it up on YouTube. It actually won the Cicero Award. And to this day, I, I think about that, that speech that, that former DNI James Clapper gave to Morehouse College and what it meant for all HBCUs. Because there's a hunger, there's a passion for service at HBCUs. And I think the federal government is starting to realize how much potential they can tap into there. For what you just said there, I know a lot of students who are from HBCUs who, like you said, want to serve, but they don't feel like the United States serves us. And because of that, it can't be both ways. I think the fact that somebody in such a high position was able to say Black Lives Matter just shows the idea of what we're kind of striving for, this idea that we're represented and thus we can kind of go out and do amazing work for our country. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So moving out of kind of college, right, going into your career, let's talk about kind of your early experiences. Um, you kind of started out um, as uh, you started out in the intelligence kind of community. Um, how did you kind of react as a black person kind of going into the space that is often white dominated? Well, you know, Morehouse College does an amazing job at preparing its students for any environment. Um, so I was quite comfortable. Um, where I wasn't comfortable was knowing that there are so few black people that are able to serve, want to serve, and can serve. There was, so there was that aspect. The other aspect was, wow, you know, we really need different perspectives, um, different individuals from different backgrounds who have seats at the table when these uh, important decisions related to national security are discussed. And that was the really the, the, the biggest um, the biggest change I saw coming from a from an HBCU um, to to the intelligence community because they're just so there's there's so many people who don't look like me who aren't from my background. What do you see some of kind of the shortcomings of the intelligence community at the moment? Um, what do you see a high need for? Um, and how do you think that we can kind of fill that demand? Um, within the intelligence community and Homeland Security? Yeah, so I mean, the, the immediate, the, the immediate um, shortcoming is uh, the lack of diversity. We know what we have to do. And I, I think we can get there. We just have to be more proactive in, in our recruitment, uh, more strategic in our re recruitment. And we have to think of sustaining novel ways to engage HBCUs regularly. You just, you just can't go to a job fair or career fair. You have to cu cultivate these relationships. Um, so that's number one. Number two, it's important to, to do productive outreach to these HBCUs and you know let certain administrators know 
hey, this is what we do. We're looking for students at your prestigious institution for internships, for full-time jobs. Can we come talk to you and build that relationship? And HBCUs have to be willing. HB, it goes both ways, right? We have to be proactive and HBCUs have to be uh, willing to, to speak and engage these institutions who deal with um, national security, these, these executive branch agencies. Yeah, and I think one thing that you mentioned really earlier is that the lack of diversity is a threat to our national security. So could you talk a little bit more about that and also what other threats you see um, that could be to, uh, are threats to our homeland security and how we could deal with that as a nation? Yeah, so, so two things. Um, and I mentioned this earlier, that when, if you have a, a group of people who all look at the world through the same lens, who see problems and address problems the exact same way, you're gonna get the same results over and over and over again, right? And oftentimes that's not fruitful. When, when I step into a room and I'm presented with a problem, I need a diverse team with me, different backgrounds, different cultures, different lived experiences because those experiences help shape how you view certain problems. And it's very important when trying to, you know, keep our nation safe and, and solve these hard issues that you have that rich diversity of thought, that rich diversity of culture. So that's, that's number one. Um, the second aspect, I think we really need uh, to invest heavily in, in STEM and in more especially you know, in the hard sciences and, and, and cyber. You know, there are so many uh, national security jobs and so many uh, STEM related jobs, even outside of national security that, that can't be filled because the, they don't have a, a, a cadre of individuals uh, and I'm speaking uh, from you know, an American cadre of individuals that they could pull from who are uh, educated uh, in, in such fashion. Now, I have to give um, big kudos to uh, Chairman Benny Thompson, who is chairman of the Committee on Homeland Security um, from, from the great state of Mississippi. He, he got through past legislation, the Intelligence and Cybersecurity Diversity Fellowship, establishing an Intelligence and Cybersecurity Fellowship at DHS. Uh, it includes tuition reimbursement, an internship, and a full-time job offer upon graduation. It just got passed in um, last year's um, NDAA, well, actually I should say this year's NDAA, um, got passed, I wanna say late late December. And it's, it's initiatives like that, that we need to focus on. Initiatives like that, because that particular fellowship is geared toward minority students, um, students at HBCUs, and MSIs. And I think that, that could be um, a, a vehicle that other, uh, that other executive branch agencies could, could look to. Yeah, and definitely, can you talk a little bit about your experience working for as an advisor for Benny Thompson? And um, once again, he was a graduate from an HBCU as well, Tougaloo College. How was it working for another person who graduated from an HBCU who valued diversity just as much as you did? Oh man, it was uh, it was absolutely amazing. I know I, I know time is limited, 
but working for, for Chairman Thompson was um, one of the greatest experiences, not just professionally, just in, in life in general. To work for a boss who cares so much about diversity and inclusion, who cares equally about securing our nation and empowers you, empowers his staff to, to do just that was was liberating, was refreshing, uh, was intellectually stimulating, and I, I loved I loved every every minute of it, every minute of it, and and to to provide you know my thoughts that he welcomed uh, in, in terms of oversight, uh, in terms of legislation, uh, in terms of engaging HBCUs was was absolutely a blessing. So can you talk about some of your experiences and kind of the intelligence community a little bit just to get some more background on what you do? Um, you talked about your highlighting, like your experiences that you highlighted. Could you talk about a little bit about the work that you've done in kind of these different countries and um, and some of the counter-terrorist threats that you've kind of talked, worked with? Sure. When I first got into the, to the intelligence community, it was at January 2008. It was at the height of the Iraq war. And I was in, a, in our Iraq branch at DIA it was um, our Joint Intelligence Task Force for Combating Terrorism, GFCT. I believe it's now been re renamed DCTC. But I was a, I was a counterterrorism analyst um, analyzing terrorist groups that operated in Iraq. At the time, uh, the, the prevalent group was Al-Qaeda in Iraq or ISI, the, the, pre, the precursor to ISIS or ISIL. And so essentially, you know, you, you pretty much track uh, reporting from a myriad of sources, um, some from human operators, um, some from open source information, open source meaning like open press, uh, social media, um, things of that nature, uh, as well as other means of intelligence, like some SIGINT from, from NSA and um, some military um, attache reporting. And you, you essentially build a picture of what you think either an individual or group of individuals are doing or what a government is, is doing in response to these particular individuals or issues. And you, you become um, through uh, osmosis and through tradecraft, a subject matter expert on that particular thing. Now that thing could either be again, one person, um, a collective of individuals um, or, or, or a topical area, amazing. So um, I did a rotation at our watch. Um, so DIA has a 24-hour watch center where they monitor all threat streams in a given AOR, an area of responsibility. My AOR was uh, CENTCOM and AFRICOM. AFRICOM had just stood up. Um, so I had uh, both CENTCOM and, uh, and, and AFRICOM. And I monitored uh, all threat streams from that, from that AOR as well as significant societal events. Think of um, mass protests, um, earthquakes, things of that nature. And, um, and I kept leadership and our, our, our military forces in those regions uh, abreast on those threat streams and significant societal events. Um, moving forward to ODNI, um, I did something similar when I was at the National Counterterrorism Center. But when I, um, I I switched over to ODNI's policy division 
an amazing experience because I wanted to get back to my policy roots, right? And as a senior policy officer, I developed um, intelligence community directives, intelligence community policy guidance, intelligence community standards. Those are the three policy vehicles that govern the intelligence community, all 18 independent agencies. And I loved policy development, right? Um, I had a good idea of how the IC worked and also had a good idea of how to improve it. And I was empowered to do so. And that's what I did um, in the intelligence community. And, and oftentimes, sometimes um, you don't need certain policies. Sometimes um, you may have a good policy and it should be changed um, due to a number of reasons. And I did that as well. We either rescinded some policies or we did technical amendments um, to make a policy stronger. And I absolutely and I absolutely loved um, love that work. Now, the one thing that I kind of knew was missing from my repertoire was um, understanding how Capitol Hill worked. Now, I under you know at the fifty thousand foot level, you know when when you learn in college and grad school, you had an idea of you know uh, of how Congress operates, but not at a robust level. And so that's what that's what brought me to to Capitol Hill. I took a one-week course from the Brookings Institution called Inside Congress. Amazing course, well-facilitated, bipartisan, bicameral, members of Congress were, were facilitators, uh, former members of Congress were facilitators, as well as personal office staff, committee staff, former staffers, and actually senior executive branch officials who regularly engaged and testified before Congress. And I loved it. And I found it so fascinating. And the executive director of the executive education program at Brookings mentioned to me, if you, if you really like this, you should consider applying for our competitive fellowship. Um, and if selected, you'd be placed on Capitol Hill for a year. And so that's how I landed in, in, in Senate Homeland. But once I, come, once I came back from my fellowship, I ended up running um, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, their communications office. Now, IARPA is the intelligence community's counterpart to DOD's DARPA. It's our advanced research shop. Um, some of the most brilliant minds in our country work there. Uh, Nobel Prize laureates, MacArthur geniuses. That's the quality of the individuals at, at, at IARPA. And I'm not a public affairs person. You know, I, I'm not but uh, an opportunity presented itself to uh, run that communications office. And I, and I love that, love that experience. Awesome and great. And since we're coming on time, I want to ask you one more question. You talked about this idea of transferring from the intelligence community and giving intelligence to doing policy. So can we talk a little bit about your adjunct kind of professor career at Georgetown University, where you teach this class, um, Congress in US and National Security Policy, that really kind of hits that idea of how you implement, how you orchestrate um, prom promoting or kind of proposing policy um, within kind of the government. Can you talk a little bit about your teaching experience, um, your approach to teaching, um, and what has um, this experience been like for you? Sure. So my approach to teaching is similar to my experience in graduate school at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. The Socratic method, cold calling. Um, that's like the teaching method uh, I use. 
uh, I want my students to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And what I mean by that is I need to draw out of them um, their, their thoughts, their, their analysis, how they look at the world, how they look at the problem, because they're, they are future national security professionals. And one thing you learn on day one, and I'm not embellishing here, is you'll be in a meeting and someone's gonna ask you a question. Without you having your hand up, they're gonna look to you and they're gonna ask you what your thoughts are. Or is this true? Is this accurate? Is this inaccurate? Or how should we handle this? And you have to get used to that. You have to get used to, you know, using your intellectual ability to kind of discern what, what is it that I'm looking at? You know, um, is this feasible? Is it not feasible? Is there a viable solution to this? And that's my approach to, to teaching, is looking at what's going on in national security and Congress and what can we do to either improve or what can we do to appropriately legislate or what can we do to keep Congress abreast on these hard problems? And that's what I try to draw out of our, draw out of my students. Oh, that's great. So Mr. Carruthers, what kind of, um, what's next for you in your career? What's going on kind of in the next um, pathways and the next kind of period of your life? So I, 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 you know, I, I can't see the future, um, but what I can tell you this is, you know, at Cornerstone Government Affairs, you know, I absolutely have some of the most brilliant and amazing colleagues um, I've ever worked with. Some of the most senior national security professionals, some of the most senior government officials that have um, walked the halls of either Congress or the executive branch agencies. And I can honestly tell you, I've never been uh, more more happy professionally, and I'll I'll leave it at that. You know, Cornerstone Government Affairs is an absolutely fantastic, fantastic place. That's great. Thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been an honor to have this conversation with you. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity.